Gnostics. It's where we're going to be. My wife is going to come and read it, which I just remembered as I walked up here. So I'm going to move out the way, and she's going to read it with her much prettier voice. Well, if you're able, please stand for the reading of the word. Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the foundation of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen and are thrust down, unable to rise. You may be seated. All right, well, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to relight the love candle. It went out on Dustin. And we can't preach the love sermon of Advent without the love candle lit. There we go. It's back. Second thing I want to do is, I don't know if you are enjoying the artwork in our Christmas in the Psalms series as much as I am, but I want to let you know that uh, one of our church members, Lori Elder, has actually drawn all of this. Uh, she is the, the, the artist behind the art, and so uh, we are so thankful for that. So thank you to Lori, and also thank you to Jessica Pratt, our media director, who does the work of getting that art onto these screens for us. So thank you to both of those ladies, because it's only made all this more, it's only made all of this more special so far this year, so I'm very thankful uh, toward them. So keep your eye on the art throughout the series. Uh, all of it represents what we're seeing in the Psalms. The Ngorongoro Crater is a massive 10 to 12 mile wide crater. It's a hole in the ground in Tanzania. And yet it creates a very natural habitat for all sorts of African animals. It's believed that this crater formed when a volcano erupted and collapsed in on itself sometime in primitive history. And the crater is a natural wonder. It's something you look at and you know only God could do this. Only God as the maker and ruler of all things could create something like this and in his majesty and his wisdom and in his judgments, he has put his glory on display in the realm of nature. And if you were to go there, if you were to go on an exploration there, you would be astounded at the beauty that you find in the, in, uh, the Ngongoro uh, crater. There is, there's a bunch of black rhinos running around. There's elephants. 
and gazelles and leopards and buffalo and zebras. Uh, Timon and Pumbaa are there. A host of pink flamingos that live on a shallow soda lake called Magadi. And the densest population of lions that you will find in the entire earth. It's like a safari heaven. If you look at the pictures of it, which I think that we may have a picture of it uh, up here. Uh, yeah, you can see what it's like. I mean, there's like wildebeest and zebras hanging out together, and then the flamingos on the Magadi in the background, and then behind that, the ridge of the uh, Ingorongoro crater. It, it looks like some sort of animal heaven. But here's the thing that that picture doesn't show you. If you really went there and you explored, you would find there is not just beauty, but there is a lot of ugliness that is in that crater as well. The lion population desires to feast on the flesh of these zebras and these wildebeests. The leopard will cut down its prey and drag its carcass into a tree and eat the rotting meat for days and days. Greedy poachers travel into the crater regularly in order to kill the black rhinos and the elephants for thrill and for ivory. In fact, the lion population is now considered at risk because of the greed of men who must have one more trophy. There are parasitic plants like the dotter, which is this green leaf, this like vine weed. It comes up out of the ground. It just swallows up everything around it. So it'll just swallow up a beautiful plants, and, and you won't see the beauty anymore. It'll just be covered up by these bright green, ugly weeds. There's birds of death like the griffin vulture, which looks like a turkey and a bald eagle had an evil, hairless baby. Just flying around, waiting for something to die or to be weak so it can eat it. There are spotted hyenas prowling around, wanting to chew on whatever is dead or vulnerable. So the, creator, the uh, crater, it possesses these images of beauty and also these images of ugliness. It's full of life. It's also full of death. And Psalm 36 is kind of this way. It's like the... In Gorongoro Crater in Tanzania, we will see the most beautiful, awe-inspiring picture of God's covenant love toward his people, and we also see the sinful, depraved state of the human heart. Two images in one psalm, and from it we will get a clear call to turn from the wickedness and the ugliness of sin and to enjoy the transcendent love of God. Psalm 36 doesn't really have a historical setting, and neither will the rest of the psalms that we look at in this series. They're all general. They could have been written by King David or the psalmist on a host of occasions. But the picture painted in Psalm 36 is clear. Man's wickedness is fearless in all the wrong ways. Man's wickedness is flattering it's fraudulent, it's failing, it's formulating evil, it's fighting against the people of the Lord, and in the end it will face judgment. But the love of God is like the beauty and the life of the Ingorongoro standing out against the ugliness in the crater. It is persistent, it is perfect, it is protecting, it is providing and with it being Advent, we are eager to say that the love of God has come to us in a person. 
And so we want to see this morning the contrast between the sinfulness of man and the love of God, and then be spurred on to a life of repentance as we go. And my hope this morning, church, is to do this in about 30 minutes, which may come as a shock to your ears. I know I have often been long-winded this year. You have not complained to my face one time. And so this month of brief sermons in the Psalms as we close out the year is my thank you to you. So that being said, I'm already losing time, so let's get into it. Picture number one, and yes, I did have my wife read so that the reading of the scriptures not be counted against my time. It's part, part of the reason. Psalm 36, verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Most English translations, including the ESV, render this verse to me in in quite a confusing way. When you read it at face value in the ESV, it makes it seem like David is saying that sinners have a message in their heart from sin itself, like sin is speaking to them in the heart. But the Hebrew would read more like this. An utterance or an oracle of transgression concerning the wicked is in the inner parts of my heart. And uh, considering the original language, I think that the NIV, and it's not often that the NIV would beat out the English Standard Version in terms of accuracy and translation, but I actually think the NIV is closer to the Hebrew when it says, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. This is what David's saying here. He's saying, God has spoken to me in my heart, and he's given me a message about the sinfulness of wicked people. See, God is a self-revelating God, meaning that he reveals himself to humanity. He does this in nature. He does this in our conscience. He does this through his word. This psalm is light from God, and as it is light from God, it sheds light. It sheds light on the wicked, foolish state of human beings. And it also sheds light on the wonderful, great love of God himself. Verse 9 says, in your light do we see light. And what the light of God's revelation is helping us to see this morning are these two contrasting images, the fallen evil of people and the ferocious love of our triune God. So let's look at the evil of humanity here. I want to give you seven quick observations. Yes, it is still a 30-minute sermon, I promise. Number one, evil humanity fears not God. You see this in verse 1. Evil humanity fears not God. There is no fear of God before the eyes of the wicked. Meaning there is no fear of the creator that stands in between the wicked and sin. When they consider sin, they go, yeah, I'll do it. There's no accountability with God. He's not going to do anything. The end of verse 1 is actually quoted by Paul in Romans 3, where he strings together like 10 Old Testament verses to show us how sinful people are. He just like, here's, here is the scriptures telling us about the sinfulness of man. And so he writes, none is righteous, no not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. And then listen, here it is, Psalm 36.1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
This is the state of humanity. They live in foolishness and in folly because they do not fear God. We know from Proverbs 1 verse 7 that wisdom begins with the fear of God. So if you do not fear God, you will be a fool. You will be a moral fool. You will constantly operate in, uh, in, in moral foolishness, making uh, decisions that are going to have bad repercussions, that are morally wrong, and that are, are stupid, if I may use that term with the children in the room, this is the only time we talk about it, all right, kids? We're talking about sin. Sin is stupid. It is. Because the consequences of sin, ultimately, it's death, but there's a whole lot of evil that can come upon you because of sin that you commit in between sin and death. State of humanity lives in this state of moral foolishness. People might be very smart, they might be very knowledgeable, they might know a lot of facts, but if you can't apply knowledge, then you are a fool. You're living unwisely. We live in a nation of moral fools, of knowledgeable fools. They know a lot, they can't apply it. On the other hand, Psalm 25 verse 14 says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. So if you do not fear God, you'll end up being a fool. If you do fear God, you'll end up being his friend. The choice is clear. Number two, evil humanity flatter themselves. Not only do they not have a fear of God before their eyes, they flatter themselves. They tell themselves that they are better than they are. They lie to themselves and say, my sin will never be found out. When the conscience of a wicked woman accuses her, she says, well, you know what? At least I'm better off than other people. At least I do better than other people. God's not going to judge me. I'm better than my neighbor. And all of this self-flattery is there so that they can continue on in unrighteousness. If, if I can soothe my conscience with lies and autobiographical fantasy tales, well, then I can keep sinning and not feel bad about it. At least that is the ruse that they have bought into. Evil humanity flatter themselves. Evil humanity is fraudulent with their words. You see this in verse 3. People lie. It may come as a surprise to you. They'll put words in your mouth that were never there. They'll put words in their own mouths that were never there. They'll say things about their own past that aren't true and they'll embellish to try to make themselves look better. They'll say things about the present that are not true in order to protect themselves. They'll say things about the future that are not true in order to manipulate people and control them. One of the greatest evidences of humanity's guilt before God is the torrid trampling upon the ninth commandment that happens incessantly around the world at every waking moment. The human tongue is a sledgehammer to the perfect glass of God's law. Number four, evil humanity fails to do good. You see this in verse three. David says that the wicked man has ceased to act wisely and to do good. They lack wisdom, and the fruit of their lack of, or their lack of wisdom is, is the fruit of not having a fear of God before their eyes. And because they live as moral fools, they fail to do good. They do not do what they know they ought to do. They omit goodness. These are the sins of omission. And understand that God is just as wrathful 
toward these sins as the sins of blatant transgression in our behavior. When you know I should not do this and I do it anyways, God is just as wrathful towards that as he is toward I know I should do this, I know this is good, but I won't do it because I'm selfish. I'm going to do what I want to do. Jesus suffered and died for the sins of omission just as much as he suffered and died for the sins of commission. Number five, evil humanity formulates wickedness. You see this in verse four. Sits on his bed and plots trouble. Makes plans that will ultimately put his feet on an evil path, on a way that is not good. He does not reject that which the Lord hates, that which is an abomination to the Lord. Instead, the evil man welcomes it, embraces it, has affection for it, sits and thinks about how he can get more of it. It's the opposite of the psalmist in Psalm 63 who does not sit on his bed and formulate evil. He sits on his bed and he plots praise. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. You can't sleep? Anxiety keeping you awake? Meditate upon the Lord and his goodness in the watches of the night. Plot praise on your bed. The evil man plots wickedness. Number six, evil humanity fights God's people. They formulate wickedness. They they fight against the people of God. Verse 11, you see David praying that the arrogant foot would not trample him. And he has asked God to spare him from the hand of the wicked coming against him and and driving him away. And his prayer request reveals the inclination of those who dwell on the earth to oppose God and to oppose his people. Because they are proud, because they are arrogant, because they have no fear of God before their eyes, they think they are out of reach of God's scales of justice. And so they attempt to oppress and harm the Lord's anointed just as they put their hands on our Lord Jesus Christ. They will seek to slaughter the saints just as he was slaughtered. They would long to make martyrs out of mighty men. We have seen this throughout church history. It has not stopped today. The persecuted church around the world feels the heat of suffering because of their identification with Christ. And we still have every year many that lay down their lives as martyrs because they will not forsake their confession of Jesus as Lord. Evil humanity fights against God's people. And David's prayer here, his preemptive request for protection, it's a revealing word about the wickedness of the world. And then number seven, evil humanity will face judgment. Do you see this in verse six and in verse 12? Wicked fools may believe that there is no justice with God, but all they're doing is lying to themselves about their ultimate destination just as much as they're lying to themselves about their own goodness. They suppress the truth about their own goodness so they can continue on in unrighteousness. Oh, I'm fine, I'm good, God's not gonna judge me. They do the same thing when it comes to final judgment. Oh no, I'm not going to stand before them. All that's made up. When the reality is, as verse 6 says, that God's judgments are too deep for us to fathom. Our little brains can barely comprehend his judgments. 
Can you comprehend the responsibility of judging every soul who's ever lived, not just for what they have done, but for the motives behind what they have done? The thoughts, the intentions of the heart. You, you can't do that. Like, like if you're married, you can't even do that with your spouse, the person that you know the best. Because your judgments are not deep, right? Our judgments fall short all the time. We assume things. This is not the way that God is. He is perfect in his judgments, and his judgments are deep. And while we cannot fathom the responsibility that he has to judge every soul who has ever lived, doesn't make it not real. Matthew records Jesus promising to judge every human soul, separating the sheep from the goats, sheep going to everlasting life, goats going to everlasting darkness. The author of Hebrews says it is appointed for man to die once and then you face judgment. John's revelation depicts the Son of Man judging every soul for every second of their lives and everyone who is an enemy of God, who's not trusted in the Lord Jesus, whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, they are sent to the lake of fire with Satan and with death itself. Those who deny the clear judgment of evil that we see in God's word, what they're doing they think, oh, I'm, just, I'm, I'm writing it off, it's a fairy tale, it's not real. What they're actually doing is they are hardening their hearts toward the one who will ultimately judge them. And that is a dangerous game to play. And it must end today if you're in it. If you have ears to hear, I want to say to you that this book right here, the Bible, it's God's clear and final revelation. And it is not unclear when it talks about eternal judgment. A time is going to come, as verse 12 says, when evildoers will lie fallen and thrust down in eternal punishment and they will be unable to rise. Time is coming. And so come to Jesus today and he will resurrect your dead heart so that you may never taste that day in which you are thrust down in eternal punishment unable to rise. Man's sinfulness is ugly, but let's compare the ugliness of the crater with the beauty that's in it. So let's contrast the evil of humanity in this psalm with the love of God in this psalm. This psalm is a whole lot like Psalm 1. If you read Psalm 1, there's a comparison between the wicked man and the righteous man, except the comparison we have here in Psalm 36, it's even more stark because we're not comparing man and man, we are comparing the wickedness of man with... The love of God. The great love of God. And so I gave you seven quick observations about the wickedness of man. Here's five concerning the love of God. Number one, God's great love is persistent. It's persistent. You see this in verse 5 and verse 7 and verse 10. Your steadfast love, that's the phrase each time. The Hebrew word for love is hesed. This is God's loving kindness. It's the same loving kindness that God wanted to be known by when he revealed himself to Moses and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed, in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping hesed, keeping steadfast love for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This love is an expression of himself. 
1 John 4.16 tells us God is love. So the self-revelating God, as he reveals himself, he reveals himself to be a God of love. And not just a God of love in terms of him sitting in heaven and having sentiments in his heart about his children. No, he is loving toward us. Like he acts on our behalf in love. He has promised himself to us. God has obligated himself to us and he fulfills that covenant obligation in love, willing and working in us, bringing to completion the work he has begun in us and he's doing all of this in his good pleasure. And he does it persistently. He does it steadfastly. He does not cease to love us. He never stops being good. And he never stops working good in love for his children. In verse 5, you see that this persistent, steadfast love is unlimited. It extends to the heavens. One of my favorite things to do when I was a little kid would be to go play football outside. And a lot of times I'd get tired and I would just kind of lay down for a second in the grass and look up at the sky. And when I was a little kid, when I was like six or seven, and I didn't know that much about, you know, the limits of the earth itself, and I laid on that ground and looked up, I thought, man, the sky looks like it just goes up there forever and ever. Like you could never, you could just fly and fly and you'd never be able to touch it. And that's the picture here. That the faithful loyalty of the Lord toward his people, stretches all the way to the clouds. It goes on forever and ever like the sky seems to from our perspective. It extends to the heavens. Verse 7, you see how it's precious. It is to be treasured the way that precious things tend to be treasured. We are to look upon the love of God the way that a, a mother would look at her newborn baby. Something to be held tightly. It's precious. And this persistent love is something to be asked for. You see that in verse 10. David asks that God's love would continue on. The word continue means to draw out. So it's David saying, God, I want your love to be drawn out over the entire course of my life and then on into eternity. David is saying, let it never end. And it doesn't. God's love is persistent. Number two. God's great love is permanent. You see this in verse 6. It's immovable. His righteousness is like the mighty mountains, meaning it does not change. He was perfectly righteous in eternity past. He is perfectly righteous at this moment. And the Lord will be perfectly righteous forever. And what that means is that the loving kindness he pours out on us is a righteous love. And that's important. Because it's unlike our love. Our love can be fickle. My wonderful wife was up here a moment ago. Just ask her about my love. In some seasons, I'm more loving than others. My love can get mixed with sinful jealousy and frustration and agitation, right? Our love so often falls short even when we have the best of intentions. But God's love is not like this. Our love is like a little anthill that can just get kicked over a lot of times, right? All it takes for our love to, to not seem so loving is maybe just something bad to happen. We blow up. God's love is not an anthill that's easily kicked over. His love is like a mountain. You know, you drive down 64, kind of head towards Charlottesville, and you start seeing the little scenic stops. 
You don't get out to check and see if the mountains are still there from when you went apple picking last year. You know that the Blue Ridge Mountains, they're still going to be there, right? You're going to pull up, you're going to take a look at them, take a picture at your favorite scenic stop because the mountain doesn't move. It's fixed. God's love is like that mountain range at your favorite scenic stop. Day after day, year after year, it's going to be there, same as before. And we can be sure that his righteous love and all his other righteous blessings will continue to come to us as his sons and daughters who are upright in heart. This is what verse 10 is saying. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. It's persistent, it's permanent. God's great love is also protecting. You see this in two ways. You see it in verses 6 and 7, and also in verse 11. In verse 6, we see the common love that God has for everyone. He preserves the life of man and beast. With every merciful breath that he allows, he he is preserving the life of man and beast. And this is believer and unbeliever. All of humanity experiences this as God's image bearers. He sustains their life. He's numbered their days, but within those numbered days, he sustains their life. And with every breath, he is mercifully loving toward them. But in verse 7 and verse 11, we see a second type of love. We see how he protects his covenant people. He protects his church. He pours out his loving kindness on us and he welcomes us into the shadow of his wings and he gives us refuge. He gives us refuge from sin. He gives us refuge from an accusing conscience. He gives us refuge from worry. He gives us refuge from from grief. He gives us refuge from anything in this life that is too much to bear. We can run to him. And we can find the strength that we need. We can find the protection we need. We can find the preservation that we need in the shadow of his wings. And the father loves to gather his children under his wings like a gentle but fierce mother eagle that is seeing to the peace and the prosperity of her little ones. And in the shadow of his wings, we find hope like David, that our enemies will not overcome us, that they can plan and plot all of this evil against the people of God, but they won't be able to inflict it the way that they desire. Because even if they were to kill us, they can't touch our souls. Keep going. Number four, God's great love is providing. You see this in verses 8 and 9. Three examples of provision in this text, and with every example, God's people are satisfied. Verse 8, he provides a feast of abundance in his house. Forever, we as the people of God will feast in the house of Zion, in the house of the new Jerusalem, and we will be satisfied in every waking moment of eternity. But until then... We get a little preview when we do this. We get to come here each week. We feast on the word and we are satisfied. We feast on songs and hymns and spiritual songs and we are satisfied. We feast on the fellowship and we are satisfied. 
He gives drink from his river of delights. You see this in verse 8. He is the fountain of life. And all who drink from his grace by faith will have eternal life and will be saved. And then in verse 9, he gives light by his light. His word and his truth are a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. These are the most basic provisions, right, that he gives. Feasting, drinking, seeing. The love of God provides for us, it it fills us up, it relieves us, it opens our eyes to the wonders of his word and to his works. And when we partake of his love and we truly receive his love, then we will not be left empty. In fact, one of the greatest things you can do for yourself is to pursue relentlessly knowing and tasting the love of God. Number five, God's great love came to us in a person. It's persistent, it's permanent, it's protecting, it's providing, and it has come to us in a person. The third question of the 1689 London Baptist Catechism is, how has God revealed himself? And the answer is he's revealed himself in nature, in creation, in our conscience. He's revealed himself in his word. We've talked about both of those things. But earlier when I mentioned this, I left out a part so I could have the the proper crescendo here at this moment. To say that he has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. That God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Jesus is the image of God invisible, and Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. The Word made flesh, God in the beginning, and with God in the beginning. If you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. He is God's great gift of love to wicked men. In the words of Thomas Watson, when God sent his son to earth, he put his greatest jewel in pawn. Behold the love of God the Father in giving Christ to be broken for us, that God should lay such a jewel to pawn as to the wonderment of the angels. And this was an act of love. The most famous Bible verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Everything that you read about God in Psalm 36 is true of Jesus. Everything that you read about God in Psalm 36 is proven by Jesus. God's son was born of a virgin, and here's what we believe about him. Now this is the true faith. That we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And He is human from the essence of His mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human. With a rational soul and human flesh. Equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although He is God and human, yet Christ is not two but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. The one Christ 
is both God and human. Therefore, he was born without the sin nature that you and I were born with. We bear the image of the first Adam by birth, but the one Christ is the second Adam, and the second Adam did not fail in his keeping of God's law. He was perfect in every way, and he was perfect in every work, and he never sinned, not once. And yet, he died. The first Adam was told, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. It was a covenant of works. The second Adam enters into the same covenant, does not eat of the tree. So why is he then dying on a tree? If he did not sin, why does he die? Because this is what he was born to do. He is the gift given by God, the perfect gift to die in the place of sinners. And he died as if he committed all the sin that you and I have ever committed. And he died as if he was a sinner like the first Adam. And he absorbed all the wrath that should have been aimed at you and I for all of eternity. And then the second Adam, as we have already sang about this morning, resurrects from the grave Showing he is the God of Psalm 36. And he has the power over death and over sin and wickedness. And that Christ has defeated sin and death is the great message of Christmas. And now God, having revealed himself, beckons you to come to him and receive his love through his Son. And so agree with God this morning that your sin is evil. It slayed the Son of God. It's pure evil. Psalm 36 reveals it. And you must turn from this sin and repent. But you don't just turn from sin. You turn to God in faith. Trusting in His Son's life and death on your behalf. Trusting in His resurrection. Asking Him to save you. And you turn from sin and you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will forgive you of your sin. He will give you not just abundant life in the here and now, but eternal life forever. And He will give you His Holy Spirit to dwell in your heart. And He will give you a new heart that can please Him. Turn to the God of love. But as you do it, I want to make one final point, and this brings everything to its conclusion here. It would be easy for us to see the evil of humanity and to see the great love of God, to look at these two realities and to say, okay, well, I need to repent, I need to repent, so I'm going to go out there and I'm just going to do better. I'm going to do better. He's a a loving God and I'm a sinful man and I'm going to do better. I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to turn to him and I'm going to muster up all my strength and I'm just going to start walking toward him and I'm going to do better. It's not going to work. Your repentance cannot be cold and external, I'm going to do better. Your repentance must be laced with love. It has to be, I agree, my sin is evil. And I love God. So I'm going to turn to Him. And I'm going to receive His love. And I'm going to live for Him. Imagine disciplining your child and telling your child that you love. Listen, this has been a tough day. 
but I want you to know, even though I've had to discipline you today, punish you today, I love you, son. And your son looks at you and says, I'll be a better kid tomorrow. It would kind of break your heart, wouldn't it? You'd say, I want more than that. Hug me. I want some affection. And I want an obedience tomorrow born out of a love for me. If all our repentance tends to be is, God, you're right, I'll do better. You'll be constantly frustrated. And Christianity will just seem like behavior modification to you. And that's what every other religion is. What makes biblical religion different is it's based on the real deal love of God toward us. Therefore, our response must be one of real deal love in return. So we don't just stop sinning. We don't repent just because of consequence or even conscience. We stop because we see that God is loving and he does not deserve to be treated like this. He deserves to be loved. Affection-based obedience from a humbled heart that is surrendered to Jesus as Lord. That's what he wants. Not just, I'll do better. Band's going to come back. As they do, if you are not a believer today, then the work ahead of you is to turn away from your sin and to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the action point for you today. Become a Christian. Follow Jesus and become a Christian. Not to get out of hell primarily, not to avoid your accusing conscience primarily, not to avoid consequence primarily, but because you see the love of God and you count him worthy of love in return. Believer, if your motivation this morning to not sin is anything other than love for God, you're probably finding that sin is kicking your tail all over this peninsula on the regular. Don't sin because you love the God of love. Christ made it simple. If you love me, you will obey me. And so turn to the steadfast love of God again today. Live in it today. Remember your first love. Because in the Ngorongoro crater, when the lions come, the zebra will use its stripes to blend in with the crowd. The gazelle will use its speed and agility and, and, uh, and its ability to change direction quickly to get away. The wildebeest just kicks and jumps until the lion gets tired of it. Well, Christian, when that lion called Satan, the devil, the accuser, the murderer, the liar, the whelp on the dog, comes for you, you hide yourself in the great love of God. You run to Him. How precious is His love. Run to Him again today. Father, thank You for Your love toward us in Jesus Christ. I pray that now as we sing to you, our hearts would be considering how we respond to this love. Do we respond to love with love or cold external religion? I pray we would forsake everything, every form of religion that's not laced with love toward you. You don't want mere cold external work, no. You want a heart that agrees with you and then turn towards you counts you as worthy of love. 
and then receive your love. Thank you for being a loving God. Thank you for your loving kindness. Pour it out on us again today. Draw us away from our sin, away from our idols, that we would feast on you, see by your light, drink from your fountain, and be satisfied. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.